And so welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Last night we talked about Brett Goldstein and Idris Elba as James Bond. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe they'll stop making James Bond. I know, Jason, don't cry, don't cry. You know, I also love music. Music and film go together. Really good music. I'm not talking about, you know, Baby Shark. As a former preschool teacher, I can tell you, I've had enough of Baby Shark. You know, and we play it every day for circle time. Enough. Good music. What can I say about... I've seen a lot of good bands. I've seen... You know, there's a few musicians I didn't get to see. I didn't get to see Ray Charles. I loved Ray Charles. I will always... There was something about Ray Charles' voice... That was magical. I didn't get to see Lemmy of Motorhead or Prince. I talked about Prince a lot last night. Um, I didn't really get into Prince until I was a teenager because, you know, a lot of the songs they didn't play on the radio. They would play the edited versions on the radio. I thought he was prolific. I thought he was in a league all by himself. He was one of the rare artists that could do that. He produced himself. And I think some people saw that as lonely. If you're a creative type, you don't see that as lonely. Because he was doing what he loved. And yeah, he was eccentric. He was very eccentric. Even Oprah very famously asked him in an interview, you ever perceived yourself as weird? He's like, yeah. But, you know, weird to me is different. And she asked him, what would you like to be remembered for? And he says, the music. And that's what he's remembered for. And I talked a lot about MTV last night. And um, on August 21st, 2016, MTV stopped their programming. Yes, I remember. And they played nothing but Prince. That says something right there. Is that we're going to honor this man. They should have done it all year long. Um, And that that moved me. That moved me because I thought, oh my God. You do not have MTV without Prince. You just don't. I mean, the the assless pants. Remember that? You know. <laughs> I can't play any of his music on here. He would his estate would come after me. All right. Uh, I mean, for me, it's about thieves in the temple. It's about purple rain. It's about if I was your girlfriend. Uh, erotic city. Oh God, erotic city. And him and Sheila E. Woo. The fact that he wrote Manic Monday. Originally for his girl band, Avalonia, and it went to the Bengals. Hey, I'm in 80s. I'm, I was born in 1980. I remember all those songs. Um, you know, Let's Get Crazy, Darling Nikki. What an, I, and he was an actor. You know, I do films and I, and I do music, but Prince, you know, a lot of people now do that. They'll act. It's, it's like, okay, you did your album. When's your movie coming out? Back then... You know, that was a kind of a sticky situation because it was like, okay, he did Purple Rain. Purple Rain was a hit both sonically and cinematically. And then he did um, Under the Cherry Red Moon. Didn't do so well. Great soundtrack. Um, and then he did Graffiti Bridge. Um, I'm trying to think what else he did. Oh, he did... Um, uh, sign of the times but it's like a concert movie you know i mean i 
I thought he was. I thought he was amazing. I thought he was original. There was there was nobody like Prince. You know what? There was nobody like Prince. Prince was one of those rare artists. This is not going to be a show about Prince. It's just not. I have to wait till his birthday to do that. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely loved him. Um, had that distinct voice. You know, he could go high and he could go low. And he was the only artist who could wear what he wore and just it, it became him. It wasn't even really talked about. It wasn't even really an issue. If it was an issue, then you were not really a fan because it was part of the whole je ne sais quoi that is Prince. Okay. And then he became the artist and then, you know, shit changed and voila. I remember the day the Prince died because that's my father's birthday. So, yep. And he mentioned that. He was like, yeah, it's Queen's birthday and the little guy died. He said the little guy. (laughs) I'm not kidding you. Yep. Yep. Oh, my goodness. When I, I I had seen, you know, all these rumblings, Nine Inch Nails came back together. They did like a Q&A for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I want to I want to mention Strombo because we miss you, Strombo. I hope you made it home. Um, and I had mentioned in this chat that we do uh, about the Nine Inch Nails reunion. He's like, yeah, how about Richard Patrick? <laughs> I was like, yeah, <laughs> Oh man, brother Robert Patrick from uh, um, Terminator, Terminator Two, and you know he was in that band Filter. You know, hey man, nice shot. There is a YouTube video of him doing "Hey man, nice shot" with Nine Inch Nails, with his compadres. Okay, that that's what it's about for me. What a fucking tour that would be to have all the former members and current members of Nine Inch Nails get on stage, which they did, and just jam. That's what music is about to me. I am a big nerd for music, okay? Um, That's why I love the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even though it, it does have some things it needs to iron out, like letting everybody in, maybe change the name, I don't know. But I love it when they do the jam together and everyone jams and they sing like a particular song together. Maybe all you need is love. Um, Remember that one year, Prince, back to Prince again. They did a jam of uh, George Harrison's uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps and Prince. You know what's funny is people always play that and they're stunned. And those of us who listen to Prince knew that he could play guitar like that. So don't come at me with that, okay? It's like the whole, you know... The Stranger Things with um, Kate Bush. Trust me, all all of us knew about running up that hill. All of us knew. It's glad that you're finally at the party, all right? Um, No judgments there, you know? Or even Metallica. Master! 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 I saw Metallica. The first time I saw them was good. The second time I saw them was last year at Aftershock in Sacramento, and I was not feeling that crowd. Also, the fact that they, they decided to do the black album from start to finish so they did it backwards okay they didn't start off with you know uh what is it um uh, sandman you know sleep with one eye open gripping your pillow tight yeah if only i could sing that to my nephew then he'd really hate my guts (laughs) 
It's not the new SpongeBob. Anyway, he's a good guy. But um, oh my god, that's what it's that's what it's about for me is live music. You know, I saw my first live act when I was seventeen. It was Gladys Knight. If you're gonna start with a legend, come on. All right, we're gonna start with Miss Gladys Knight, uh, the Empress of Soul. I mean, come on, can it can it be that it was all so simple? And then Wu Tang sampled it. All right, I know about that. I'm a big Wu Tang fan. Uh, Midnight Train to Georgia, which originally was called Midnight Plane to Houston. I know my music history. Um, neither of us wants to be the first to say goodbye. If I was your woman, if you were my man, come on. That's actually in A Life Less Ordinary, the film. Great film. Uh, Cameron Diaz and uh, Ewan McGregor. Such a rich cast. Uh, Delroy Lindo. um, Holly Hunter. Yeah. Uh, What's another one? I mean, I heard it through the grapevine. They did it before Marvin Gaye did it. All right. And then what happened? Gladys Knight and the Pips were on Motown. And then they went out on tour because I was listening. I was watching Sway in the morning. By the way, Sway is from Oakland. Come on. I know about the Bay Area connection. Come on. I used to watch the California Music Channel. We didn't have MTV when I was growing up. We had the California Music Channel. My brother and I would watch it. They played Tupac. They played, you know, uh, E-40, who has never got his dues, by the way. You know, sprinkle me, sprinkle me. Come on. It was the 90s. I loved hip hop. I loved hip hop first before I loved rock. That's true. Uh, you know, getting to see Cypress Hill last year, that, that for me, that was a moment because I've loved them since I was 12. That was before I, w- I even knew what marijuana was. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, that's before. You know, I liked all of them. I like Snoop and I like Dre. I uh, especially like Nas. I still like Nas. Um, wasn't really a big Jay-Z fan. Really wasn't. Rock, uh, Rock him, you know, Eric B and Rock him, and then Rock him did some solo stuff. Uh, Slick Rick. <coughs> I mean, I can I can name them all. For me, a really good MC is when they can speak to you intimately. And then even Heather B. Heather B, she put an, out an album. It was what is it? Taken Mine. And then she had all Glocks down. And then um, what was another one she had on there? Um, No, the Heartbreaker. Oh, I love that. I love Heather B. Heather B had a distinct voice. All right. Those are the people in hip hop that I like. It was when they had like D.O.C. If you hear how D.O.C. sounds now versus how when he put out the first album and then he was in the car wreck. I know all about that. I know my history of music. All right. Yeah, don't get it twisted. Um, but when it comes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they're not always inclusive. You know, a good example of that, okay, this year they nominated a lot of people. They nominated the fabulous Dionne Warwick. By the way, I love to throw these little nuggets out there. Dionne Warwick was the cousin of Whitney Houston and of Leon Price. Leon Team Price, who is an opera singer, Okay. They're all related to Sissy Houston. And, um, yeah. And uh, Dionne Warwick was nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And she was on Watch What Happens Live. And they said, what do you think about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And she's like, I'm not a rock and roller. 
And then she's like, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is how I grew to know it. Was about rock acts like Tina Turner. So, you know, she says if they could change it to the Music Hall of Fame. And Dionne Warwick had a great point right there to call it the Music Hall of Fame, okay? I mean, yeah, I, I get it. I get the whole essence of rock and roll, all right? You know, the aggression, you know, the Rolling Stones. Hip hop and rock and roll are birthed under the same moon, okay? They really are. And when I saw Buddy Guy last week, and Buddy Guy talked about that. He says, you know what? We were singing the blues, and now the hip-hop guys and girls are singing the blues. And they're able to curse. He says, because back then, when you were doing blues, you couldn't curse. And then he cursed for us. So we'll be back after this, and uh, we're going to talk about more music. Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. Stay tuned. Music edition. Elements weren't there, um, so I don't know. You, you know, you, 
fans are you clutching clutching at uh, thin air at points and so we're back dr zeus film podcast why not talk about radiohead who revolutionized music in the 21st century in the 90s i mean it was about you know pablo honey their first album creep and then things changed and they did the bends in 1995 and then you started to see kind of this schism of things that were changing and i think the first song for okay computer that they did was lucky i think was lucky because they put it on like a, a soundtrack uh, for I think Tibetan for Tibet I could be wrong I could be right I don't know and then from the Benz to Nigel Goodrich producing 1997 25 years ago OK Computer OK Computer changed everything people actually started to take notice which is funny when it comes to awards it's like oh the grammy goes to and they did win they won their first grammy for alternative music album were nominated for album of the year which stunned a lot of people they were up against bob dylan who won paul mccartney paula cole remember that Babyface. um yeah and the baby boomer won. Actually, no, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't call Bob Dylan a baby boomer. I mean, he made music for baby boomers, but yeah, I love Bob Dylan. Oh my god! Uh, and then what happens is they put out this documentary, "Meeting People Is Easy," in 1999, and they're trying to, you know, record ideas. And then we enter 2000, and Kid A is born reborn reprogrammed and i've talked to people throughout the years how kid a just changed everything i mean that's an interview from 2000 uh with uh, much music uh, big big uh respect to much music uh uh the home pl- used to be the home of strombo that's how i discovered strombo he did his uh, metal show and uh, yeah the rock show Oh my God, Radiohead. What can I say about Kid A that hasn't been said? I think the first time you you start listening to Radiohead and then, you you know, I was talking about earlier the intimacy of an artist and the headphones, the, the, you put their, you know, sometimes it's good for speakers, you know, in your car, but when you put Radiohead on the headphones, you're able to glide. And it kind of reminds me of listening to Lou Reed because Lou Reed he knew his audience and he even said one time he says my audience were made for headphones he put on headphones in your mind and so there was a similarity with that in radiohead because it was it was very visceral the music yes you know some people will say oh it's very depressing but it's so beautifully done and kid a i mean it opens with everything is in its right place kid a the national anthem how to disappear completely which is just sublime tree fingers optimistic which oh geez in limbo which is one of my favorites idiotech morning bell motion picture soundtrack untitled kid a just 
it can't, it slapped you around. It slapped you around. And then this was followed by Amnesiac in 2001. <laughs> and then Hail to the Thief in 2003. Um, and then In Rainbows in 2007. In Rainbows was that album where you can name your price. And I remember that. And yeah. Huh. And then you downloaded it. And boom. There you were. Ra Radiohead. I've never seen them. Maybe one day I'll get to see them. I would love to. It it just doesn't get any better than that. I mean, in terms of the the color and the shape and the uh, the movement of a Radiohead song and what they're able to do, it's it's not your typical popular music it's not your typical it's not your typical rock and then everyone they hear that and then they try to copy that you know and then this oh this is the radio head of this era or this is like oh god coldplay i like coldplay but it's like they're not radiohead so to compare them to radiohead it's like no i don't see the comparison because it's they if they're trying to do a concept album it's like okay all right. But then, you know, with Radiohead, they're not trying to be popular. They're really not. What they're doing is they're like, we're ma we made this album. If you like it, good. If you don't, then fuck you. That's really what it is. That's really what a band, when a, when a band comes together as they have come together. You know, they didn't even go to their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Only two of them went. It says something right there about them. It's like, who cares? And I kind of like that. Sex Pistols did that too, but the Sex Pistols, they just did one album. And it's like, I, I could say so many things about the Sex Pistols, but it's just, it's, it's redundant. It's erroneous. It's like, who cares? Who fucking cares? Um, I had a chance to see Radiohead about five years ago and I didn't go. Oh, probably because I didn't know they were in town. They were in Berkeley, so fuck me. That's on me. That's on me. Um, they haven't put out an album since 2016. <coughs> that remains to be seen. Maybe something is brewing. Shout out. Something could be brewing. Let's hope. Then I will get to see them on tour. You know, this is what it's all about, is this music that you put on your headphones, and it speaks to you, and... And not only, I mean, you know, there's a, when I put, when I would listen to music, it's an, it's not just an escape. It's an immersive experience. This is before music video comes into play. This is before YouTube. This is before GIFs or GIFs or whatever you call them or social media in general. You know, yeah, social media is cool, but I remember where you could just put on the record and you just, these images are in your head. And, you know, it's all the way, uh, the cassettes, I never liked the cassettes because, yeah, you could make, you could make someone a playlist, but then I'll tell you, honestly, I knew it wasn't going to last. I knew that the way the technology was moving, it's like, okay. And then burnable CDs. I had a, I had a disc man from the time I was 13, no, 14, 94, 14. 
because I'm a December baby. So at the end of de- or toward December, I turned. Uh, that's when I was born. Um, I got a disman for Christmas. And a lot of the kids in my eighth grade didn't even, they had like the cassette players or the, the Walkmans. I had a Discman. Um, but then you could scratch them up because it would skip. That was always anti-skip. I had a Discman from 94 till 2000 and, oh, geez, five. <laughs> 2005. I didn't get an MP3 player. I didn't get my first iPod until 2005. I remember because it was the video one. Because I knew someone who lived down the street from me who had an iPod. And I said, I won't buy one until they have video on it. And boom, put it out and I bought it. And, I'll, I mean, the revolution will not be televised. Um, it won't. But it's on music and it's through technology. And, you know, it, it was... I I mean, I remember we were coming back from Disneyland, some friends and I. Shout out, James. Love you, man. Um, we were coming back with a lady that we both knew, and they were arguing about something. And I'm listening to Tool on my iPod. And they're like, you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And then Tool came on the radio, and they're listening to it. And I'm like, too bad you don't have, like, a car hookup. And they're like, why? I said, I got all of Tool on this little thing. It was like... People were slow to the party. The same the same with the iPhone, the first iPhone. I remember going to Starbucks and, and nobody had a smartphone at that point. Is It's weird. It's weird to have that jumping off point. Like you're on the cliff, you're looking down, and you're the only one who's going to jump. And everyone else is just going about their business. That's what technology is like. Okay? And um, I know a lot of people who... They'll say to me, oh, I wish I could do that with my phone, but I don't have the time. And it's like, okay. And I try not to be mean, but it's like, okay, if you've had your phone for more than three years, this is your this is your time. This is your moment to fiddle around with it rather than sit and watch TV and play cards. Fiddle around. See what your camera does. See what your music does. If you have a, an assistant, like I have Siri, you know, I shouldn't say that because you know what I noticed is on the last podcast, I'm saying Siri, and, and it reacts. Siri actually reacts when the recording is playing of this show. Oh, my God. Technology has been accelerated, and, you know, it's only a matter of time. I mean, there's a guy who already put his Tesla key in his arm, and it's like, oh, geez. Well, he put the chip, you know, <laughs> and I'm going to keep that in. Um, What music does for me is music is... Music is like food. It's nourishment. And some people, you know, it's background music. And um, it's something to shag to, as the British would say. (laughs) Um, But in the long run, I'll tell you, music really is, it's, it's magic will always be magical when the music videos fade and when all this other bullshit fades and I know you're listening you're like yeah yeah I tried to play instruments it didn't work I tried to learn guitar I can sing a little my father can play guitar but he can't sing so what does it tell you (laughs) Uh, my cousins can play guitar and sing and it's like geez I was always envious of guitar players and bass players 
musicians are just it's it's a sexy thing it's a sexy thing come on uh i'm a big tool aficionado and so to watch watch all of them and i've said this before i've i've called them virtuosos and they are now my late professor would probably say otherwise which is fine but i mean it they're all equal parts. You've got Danny Carey who plays the drums and and the synths and on Fear, the last album Fear Inoculum really just dived in. And then Justin Chancellor who is the bass player who has synesthesia and can see the colors of it. The way he plays bass is just spellbinding. And then you have Adam Jones who is the guitar player, the, the man who does the music videos and uh used to work on terminator films and i mean come on and then you got maynard james keenan the vocalist who was able to sing in such a strange way um that even sammy hagar of van halen it's like when sammy hagar of van halen takes note then it's like all right so i'm gonna play a little clip for you because it's not copyrighted of the ernie ball the strings and it's string theory featuring Justin Chancellor of Tool. Oh yes, this the way this guy plays bass. Come on, here we go. Playing music playing <coughs> bass for me is, you know, the ultimate freedom. I've never been a great talker, which is ironic. When I play music, expressing myself is a lot easier for me. Playing an instrument, I think. around six I really started to get into my parents records and they had the weirdest smallest little group of records and they weren't that into music but what they had I'd play and listen to almost religiously like I'd get home from school and I'd put the records on it was like cool it was uh, 1995 I think Adam was already getting strings from Ernie Ball so it just sort of happened naturally you know I was like, I need to buy some new strings. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Someone made a call and, uh, you know, I got only ball strings. And pretty amazing, really. I'm, you know, that you guys have been uh, supplying me with strings for over 20 years now. Putting fresh strings on my guitar is always a real inspiration for me. The string is at its full potential, you know, when you unwrap it, you put it on. But you can hear so many harmonics in the note at that point, you know that it's almost like there's like a choir singing, even if you hit one note or you strum a chord. Live show is pretty massive because it combines everything. Yeah, you're playing songs that you've already written, but it's different every time. You're trying to be excellent, you know, you're trying to express emotion. You're realizing that you can play things differently each night. You make different mistakes each night. Sometimes you discover things that you wish you'd recorded on the album like damn it and at the same time you know you're same thing with the food i'm giving you a little bit of a guide i'm not going to beat you over the head with it if you don't want to get it you don't have where goal or is dug in and he loves this place that's that's everything brian and alan run the caduceus seller's tasting room they're in for the long haul here they're artists uh Danny Carey of the Los Angeles-based band Tool is one of the most powerful and creative drummers of this time. Influenced and
carrying on the tradition of the greats, Billy Cobham, Lenny White, and John Bonham. expecting to have such a huge reaction to, to all of this that's been going on yes absolutely i it, it's it's been too long and i it, it's just what kind of reaction mm -hmm. you know positive or negative and right for the most part it's been very very positive and uh we have uh just this incredible fan base that can't be explained mm -hmm. you know it's you know other bands will come and see our band and they'll be on the side stage and they just go I don't get this. And I go, I don't either. Mm. <laughs> you know, you know, little bit of radio is just mostly word of mouth. And like I said, it's just, it's just passionate people. But I think it's a thing that we take very serious and we just put our complete hearts into. And I think that's, uh, people see that and they appreciate that. I mean, that's what I appreciate about the arts mm. is how far someone takes something, you know, and you can tell you get very passionate. You know, I always kind of compared to like, you know, uh, my wife's a, and I'm an artist and on the side and um, knee-jerk artist mm -hmm. and uh, I always compared uh, compared to like kind of turn-of-century oil painting which I really like a lot you know John Singer Sargent and you know others and mm. um, these guys and so those are the members of Tool talking at various different moments about the music before we end tonight's show, the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast, Music Edition, I wanted to turn the attention to someone who, oh God, is so intelligent, um, so fully aware of her instrumentation, really set out to be a painter, never set out to be a musician. And this is her. Here you go. If you can guess who this is. She was breaking up with her husband. It was misery, I thought, oh, the poor woman. And so I wrote this poem called The Fishbowl about Hollywood before I ever was here, you know. The fishbowl is a world reversed with where fishermen with hooks that dangle from the bottom up reel down their catch without a fight on gilded bait. Pike, pickerel, bass, the common fish ogle through distorting glass. See only glitter, glamour, gaiety. Fog up the bowl with lusty breath. Lunge towards the bait and miss and weep for fortune's loss. Envy the goldfish? Why? Is bubbles breaking round the rim while silly fishes faint for him and say, Oh my God, I think he winked at me. <laughs> so you see. When did you write that? When I was 16. Wow. So before I went to art school, before I got into this game, you know, so I'm not entering the game in a normal way. So what becomes the turning point where this becomes not just uh, a career, but a massively successful one? I had no career. So when does, the, had, when does the career... And I had no ambition to be a musician because there was no reason. I mean, the bottom was falling out of folk music. My only thing was 
this is the last time I'm ever going to be able to look at grade 12 education, get enough money in the bank, you know, make hay and well, the sun shines. Joni, well, you worked really hard in the late 60s and early 70s to I like the cultivate the career that you did. I like writing. I like composing. I like creating. I love the creative process. I hate self, you know, uh, I hate this, kind of. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> no, I, I, I really don't like uh, the third degree, right, you know, right. like, and, and, and people getting everything so wrong. I don't, neither does Warren Beatty. You don't see him doing interviews very much. He doesn't like to be misunderstood either. And being interviewed guarantees misunderstanding, you know. So how does it feel like when that person becomes, as you did in the, uh, in the by the early 70s, um, this massive star, How, having said all you did about fame. I retreated and, into the BC wilderness. Yeah. You know, I hated it. Hated it. Mm. What about the fact that just tons of people were buying your records? Well, that's different. And they're, you know, that's different. And the people that feel the music, and the, the trick is, if you listen to that music and you see me, you're not getting anything out of it. If you listen to that music and you see yourself, It'll probably make you cry, and you'll learn something about yourself, and now you're getting something out of it, you know? That, of course, is Joni Mitchell, and I have a lot of listeners on my show, Dr. Zeus Film, the LNC, Canada's Best, and I figured, well, if I'm going to play Joni, there's another Canadian icon that you have to play because I feel they're all part of that pantheon. Um, that's Mr. Neil Young. And I could listen to Neil talk for forever. And um, the way he talks about music and composing it and the same with Joni. You know, Joni... Joni really started a different way of playing. And a lot of musicians, in particular a lot of female musicians, would talk about, you know, or Joni would do wing, wing, wing on the guitar and you've got a chord. You wouldn't really have to finger pick. You know, I mean, she could. But, um, you know, she, I mean, these great song. I love songwriters. I just do. And, um, Here's Neil Young. And you're so mindlessly playing, and everybody else is there, that something happens. And as that's happening, this cool breeze comes along. And that's just the way it is. To be clear, you're not talking about a, literally a cool breeze. It's when I breathe in, it's cool. It's cold. And I can feel it. Now, when that happens... Something very special happens between you and the guitar. Let's talk about that. I mean, sometimes it seems to me that you you play the, the guitar so forcefully it's almost savage. Well, you know, it depends on what I'm playing about. Depends on what I'm thinking. But when it gets to a certain point, there are no strings. There, there is, there is no neck. And you, you just feel. go into this new place, and then you get there. And, you know, until you've been there, you're keeping track of what's happening. You know, 
I know what key I'm in, what's next, you know, to some degree. And then you, the more into the music you get, the less you think about those things. And hopefully pretty soon you forget about them completely. And then if you're lucky and you really get going, you get a cool breeze and you're, uh, you know, mindless. And that's uh, Neil Young talking to Dan Rather. And so tonight I thought we would end the show with someone who I saw in concert twice this year who all of these musicians really learned their craft from. And it took him being introduced by the Rolling Stones um, because at that point nobody knew who he was. Okay. That's Mr. Buddy Guy. He said the club was uh, 100% black unless you saw white cop or the owner of the club was white was with seven or eight club was a white white owned but only time he'd come in there to pick up his receipts and the black people's running it so when we would be on stage there junior welder myself or anyone muddy you see two white faces come in and sit at a table a stand and i'm like b we had to we couldn't afford nothing but a bottle of wine so little walter if he did get it they drank it up before you get it so we'd have to hurry up and say well Man, we can't even pull that bottle out now because you wasn't supposed to bring your bottle in the club. You know, you can't pull the bottle out because I know that's a cop over there, and that's why. And this is like Paul Butterfield or Michael Bloomfield. Or Charlie Musselwhite or something. Uh-huh. And I'm like saying, oh, man, uh, they done messed us up now. We can't even drink our stuff now. And, it's, and that went on for, mm, what, six months or eight months before they started identifying themselves that they wanted to hear the play. I, I think the first time I, I realized Paul, I mean, uh, Michael Bloomfield, was at one of Wolf concerts. Michael was the guitarist. Uh-huh. And uh, he was, asked Wolf to set in. And I mm-hmm. said, and then he came up and sat in and played with Dallin Wolf, which was hard to play with. But then I say, wait a minute, you know, this is, is this is a white guy playing blues like this, you know, because I didn't think they would even think about listening to it, you know, and so on. And from that on, yeah. And the next thing I saw was like Eric Clapton, them coming in one by one, not letting you know anything. They just found these blues clubs and come in and say, a white face and a black joint like this. Because see, a lot of black people used to just, if it's BB or Muddy anyway, if you hit a good tune, they'd just jump up and start dancing and screaming. You know, they didn't they'd just sit there and say, wait a minute, I got to hear. They'd let you know I'm here and I come to boogie. You know, I'm going to shake this thing tonight. And uh, and they were just sitting there quiet looking at them and saying, wait a minute, what's, what is this, you know? And then I finally went to uh, England in February of 1965, and I'm like him. I'm like saying, maybe I should learn. Maybe I should play a country and western. I don't know how to do that. What am I going to play here, you know? And the guy did me the same thing. He just come up, and the the keyboard player started playing a boogie-woogie before I got on stage. I said, wait a minute. What inspired you to open Legends, the club, in 1989? And what are some of the great nights that you have had there? I'm sure there are a zillion of them, but, you know, maybe just an example to get people to come on by. Well, for one, I know I don't know if you saw the the taping that the Rolling Stones did. That, that was yes, they did show up Ac- recently. Actually, they was supposed to show up several times before that, and uh, the streets was blocked off because the club didn't hold but about sixty-five people. And, that's the uh, size of their road crew. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm gonna get to that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
first, I think it was three times they were supposed to show up, but they didn't want the media to know it because that's what happened. So every time the media found out, they had people hanging off the top of it, offering me $1,000 to get in there, and I'm like saying, okay, so they didn't show up, they didn't show up. So the night they showed up and we taped it, Junior Wells and I was coming, had a flight out of uh, Vancouver to Chicago, and we got almost to the club two blocks away, and the police had the street blocked off, and the cab, we had took a, ta a taxi from the airport, and they, they said, you can't go down to the Rolling Stones down there. So one of the sergeants knew me, so I stepped out, and the sergeant said, you can't stop him, he owns it. So we walk down there, and I get to the club to get in there, go in the door, and a guy across the street says, uh, buddy guy, I would give $1,000 to get in there. And I'm saying to myself, wait, let me go in here and see can I make room for you. <laughs> <laughs> I go in the club. The club is full. I had a guy working on the door. I said, we made some money. And he looked at me. He said, not a dime. Say, 60 of those people got a Rolling Stones crew. The other six is your manager's friends. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> And uh, the promoter was Bill Grimm, who had the Fillmore East and Fillmore West. He was sitting at the bar, and I only had one drink of Jack Daniels in my life. He said, come on, let me buy you a drink. So I say, what the hell? I better take this, because this look like all I'm going to get. So <laughs> they came over to me and told me, said, well, we know you didn't make no money. We're going to give you $800 for the club. I felt pretty good. Then I said, at least I get something out here with this many people in here, and I'm not going to have a dime for the Rolling Stones. So people got saying, small as club in the world had the Rolling Stones. And I mean, people was begging to pay big to get in. I'm like saying, buddy, won't you go out there and bring somebody in and get $5 at least? <laughs> you know, I saw them three weeks ago in my club. I said, man, is y'all going to ever give me my $800? <laughs> Did you get it? They told me, see the manager. <laughs> so, yeah, that's Buddy Guy, the legend, one of the last. I mean, Junior Wells is gone. Muddy Waters is gone. Little Walter's gone. Um... B.B. King is gone. They're all gone. And to see Buddy Guy at this point, Buddy Guy is 86 years old, okay? L next year, I think, is the last tour. And I saw him this year in Napa and again in Sacramento. And when you're in his presence, you realize this is magical. And that's what music does. That's what music does. It brings us all together. And that's what I noticed seeing Buddy Guy is People from all races and walks of life were all sitting together. And when he would bend those notes with that guitar, I mean, damn. You can't help but just go, whoa. And you're just vibing out to it. You know what I mean? And then his opening act, um, his opening act, she was really good. 23-year-old uh, guitar player, female guitar player from Texas. Um, when you're saying about someone from Texas, you got to say Texas. I'm not from Texas. <laughs> um, her name is, let's see. Allie Venable. 
really great guitar player. I'll play a little bit of her for you. And here we go. And that's her playing. I think she was playing a Stevie Ray Vaughan song, um, instrumental. And so that's the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast, music edition. Unpleasant dreams. <laughs>